This morning, turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 2. I'm uh, Brother Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. It's, uh, it's great uh, to be with you this morning, and it's great to uh, look at an amazing story uh, that captivates us because it's uh, maybe a, a side of Jesus that uh, is not shown a lot uh, in the Gospels, but that revealed to us the complete character of Christ. So John chapter 2, <clears throat> we'll be reading in verses 13 through 25. It says this, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with sheep, with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his, on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people. And he ne and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So here we have this account of Jesus cleansing the temple, clearing out the temple, uh, causing a ruckus in the temple. And you find this story in all of the Gospels. But what you'll notice with the other Gospels is that it occurs shortly before his death, his crucifixion. And here in John, we have it at the beginning of his ministry. And it's hard to, to kind of know what's happening here because uh, you kind of hear from, from conservatives, uh, all type of biblical scholars, you have different views. Some, some believe that John is just playing with the chronological order, that for, for John's purposes, he wanted to give this account that happens later. He wanted to give it at the beginning. And still other scholars would say, no, there's two different, uh, this happens twice. Because there's a, a, some small variances to it and there's some other things. And I'll be honest, I, I at first, when I first started, I thought that maybe it was just one occurrence. But as I studied, I become more convinced that, that I think that it is uh, two occurrences that happen. Uh, that are similar. It's hard to say with absolute 100% certainty, but, but I think 
one thing that John does want us to do here is he wants to see it, uh, this event in light of what we looked at last week. He wants us to kind of take that marriage uh, feast where he turned the water to wine and kind of compare these two. Um, and, and think about how opposite these events were. The water to wine was a very, very private event where this is very, very public. The water to wine was a very peaceful event, a quiet event, and this, of course, is a very loud event. The water to wine was kind of Jesus setting the table where this event is more him destroying the tables and, and overturning the tables. And yet, in both, though they are very different, in both instances, he's really doing the same thing. He's establishing his authority as the Christ. That this is no mere man. He is the one that can fill up what is needed, and he can, when it's time, flip over the tables when it's time to do that as well. So we see that Christ is zealous in this text, we see that Christ is zealous for our worship of God, and his authority comes from his identity as the temple and the one who would die and rise again. We see that Christ, first let's just talk about this event in, in light of it being, I mean, Christ is angry, right? And he's, he kind of seems like, he looks like he's out of control. And Christ has a problem with, with things that are going on outside the temple. Um, those problems are with those that were selling and exchanging money inside the temple area. You know, so it's interesting. Just when you think this guy has, you have this guy figured out, okay, I, I, I got a feel for this guy. He's, he's like the nice guy that, that turns water to wine. Like he's, he, like, He's the, the party sustainer, right? He keeps the party going. When we're about out of wine, he's going to fill it up. And then he turns around right here, and he's the party pooper. He comes in, and he's destroying what everybody's doing, and he's doing it in a very... Um, he, he's angry. He's righteously angry. And he takes these cords, and he puts them together, and he makes a whip, and he then goes to swinging, and he chases the people... And the animals, there's a small stampede in the temple area. He then takes the table of the money changers and flips the tables. And then he asks those with the pigeons to take them away. So before we get into the main point, like, is, is this account say that ang anger's okay? That it's okay to lose control? You know, you, you have anger problems and you ask, well, maybe I shouldn't deal with my anger problems because Jesus uh, looks like he's pretty angry, he's pretty out of control. But I want you to look at two things. I want you to look at the cause of his anger. He's angry because the worship of God is at stake. He's not screaming because, because his kid's aren't getting in bed on time. He's not out of control screaming because he was cut off in traffic. He was angry about the most 
important thing that exists on this planet, and that is the worship of the everlasting God. We also see that even though it looks out of control, we see that he's actually very in control. It's very interesting when you examine this because he scares off the people. He doesn't hit anybody, right? He's not punching people out. He makes a whip and he scares them all away. He chases the cattle out. Of course, those cattle can be regathered. Those people that own those cattle can go and get those cattle. As he removes the money changers, that money can all be gathered. He's not stealing the money. But probably the most interesting thing is that with the pigeons, if he tips over the pigeon table, what happens? The pigeons go away. Those people lose their pigeons. And so he was so in control that with that he said, get these pigeons away. He, t- he lets them take them away. And that's, that's control, right? He's in control here. So, so I'll say this, if you are angry about the glory of God, and you are absolutely 100% in control of your anger, then we'll talk about it being a righteous, good anger like Jesus. But most of the time, our anger is over some affront to us, and most of the time our anger is out of control, and that is not what this was. So let's look at what we can learn from this encounter. Why why was Christ angry? Well, Christ was zealous that his Father be worshipped. He was angry about worship, or the lack thereof, or the lack of of good worship, of focused worship that should have been going on. He says, take these things away, do not, in verse 16, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The temple of God up until the time of Christ was that central geographical location that represented God's presence with his people. The people were to come at Passover and offer their sacrifices to God. And this Passover sacrifice was really a central act of worship of the Jewish people where they remembered their time in Egypt and God's redemption of them out of Egypt. We know that in the other accounts of the cleansing of the temple, he mentions that his father's house was to be a house of prayer. Prayer, worship, solemn. It was supposed to be solemn. It was supposed to be engaged in a very focused worship of God. Now, this service of money changers and and selling sacrifices was not in and of itself a bad thing. This was actually a service that was needed. Uh, If you were coming to town and you had foreign money, you couldn't take that foreign money with its emperors on the, uh, on, the, on the front. You couldn't take that into the temple. And so they needed a way to exchange the money. Poor people needed a way to, to buy those birds. Uh, people that were traveling from really far away needed a way to get their sacrifices. And so 
this actually is, is actually a needed service that's being provided. But what the problem is, is that, for one thing, it was happening in the temple area. It wasn't supposed to happen in the temple areas. It was happening in the, in the Gentile court of the temple. It wasn't supposed to happen there. It was supposed to happen some other place down the road, removed from this solemn area of worship. And it wasn't to be out of hand. It had just gotten out of hand. Likely uh, price gouging. Uh, we're going to, instead of offering a fair price, we're going to bump up the, the, uh, the price on these cattle. And, and, and some of the people, uh, the, some of the priests were probably calling, hey, that's, that sacrifice is clean when it really wasn't a good sacrifice. But hey, you can make some money off of it, so we'll call that clean and so there was just, it had gotten out of hand, like a, a, a decent service that was needed had gotten out of hand. And what was to be this solemn moment at a place of worship had been turned into a shopping mall. The seller's ultimate priority was making a buck, not the worship of the everlasting God. God was not the priority of their worship. It was crazy. It got out of hand. It's about making money and not worshiping God. Second, we see that Christ was zealous that the nations might know God through worship. The shopping mall, called a shopping mall, was actually set up in the court of the Gentiles. Now, you need to understand what that was. That was the area of the temple property that Gentiles could, could come to. Okay? It was where they could kind of come and check out what was going on at the temple. It was a place where they could come and see God meeting with His people and His people meeting with Him and maybe be moved by that and maybe be brought to God. But what was happening was these foreigners and these Gentiles were coming to the temple and they were standing in the middle of a shopping mall. And they were sitting there thinking they look a whole lot more concerned about making money here than they do about worshiping God. Now imagine how that made God look. They weren't presenting God as He was. They were making him look cheap and making money look like it was more important than God. Mark eleven seventeen in this account, in that account of, of the uh, money changing, changers being chased out, it says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Christ was definitely, without a doubt, concerned about the, what the nations were seeing in the midst of this awful, out-of-hand, money-exchanging, cattle-selling mall that was in the temple area. Temple worship existed to lift up the glory of God, of the glory of, of the God of Israel, so that others might see, but all they were seeing when they came to the temple, was people interested in money. 
And Christ was zealous that the people be reflective in their worship. What was happening here made the sacrifice one of convenience instead of one of reflection. At this time, the, the Jewish people had become very scattered. They weren't all local anymore. And we know that what were the original instructions were, you took a lamb into your house, right? And you, you took care of that lamb for several days before you even brought it to the temple so that you would and your family would really feel the death of this lamb. But in this, everything had become a thing of convenience. You don't have to, you don't have to get to know the sacrifice. Just bring, a, bring some money, give us some money, grab your sacrifice at the gate, go ahead, run in there, the, the, the lamb gets the knife, the animal gets the knife, and you can go home knowing that you did your religious duty. It was all about convenience. the meaning of the sacrifice seemed to be getting lost in all this. And this was for God's people to see, was to see the need of the sacrifice that man is sinful and therefore blood must be shed in the forgiveness of sins. And they were just running around crazy, not reflecting on the depths of sin. Imagine... Imagine how that landed on Christ as the Lamb of God, as the one who was, who was going to be the sacrifice that would end all these sacrifices, to see all these people not paying attention, not being reflective of the sacrifice, but only being a thing of convenience for them. So how do we apply this? So is this text a directive on how we should treat our church buildings? One commentary that, and I, and I love the guy, uh, he's no longer living, but usually has great insight, but his takeaway from this verse was, that's why we shouldn't have ice cream socials at the church. I think that's missing the point of the text. You cannot equate our church building with the temple of, the Old, of Old Testament worship. It's not the same thing. It's clear in the New Testament teaching that the temple is, is now us. We're the temple, right? We are... This is not the church. This is not the temple. This is where the temple meets. This is where the people of God who are indwelled by Christ come to worship. This is just a place to keep us cool in the summer and, and warm in the winter. Keep the rain off our heads. It's not the same thing as the temple of old. Romans 12, 1 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I love that. So the, the New Testament change is this, is that we are the temple, 
Okay, as the church, we are the temple that is indwelled by God, and everything we do is worship, folks. Listen to me. Donnie is awesome. I love the way Donnie leads us in music. But listen, that 20, 25 minutes, that's not the only worship we're to be doing. Like we, That's what we've kind of done. We've confined it. Oh, I'm going to worship. I'm going to... And we, we don't even think of preaching as worship when it should be. And we just kind of confine worship to these 25 minutes of singing. And, and the Bible could not be more clear that everything we do is worship. It should be. So we don't so much look for what detracts from worship in buildings anymore, but we look into our lives and see what is contrary to worship of the living God in our lives and the things that we do. What are the tables in our own lives that need to be overturned? What in your own life takes God from the center? What in your life makes God look like less than He is to those that are observing your worship of Him? And where are you worshiping God out of convenience instead of being reflective and thinking about the gospel and the sacrifice that Christ made and truly dwelling on all that He is and all that He's done for you? No, it's not, it's not about a building and how we act in the building, but how we act in life, about what we do in life, and everything should be subject to the worship of the living God. Let's look at the response of the people. In verse 18 it says, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show for us, uh, show us for doing these things? I mean, that's a, that's a response that legitimate right like what you just did was crazy what gives you the right to do what you just did he says this in verse 19 destroy this temple and in three days i will raise it up the jews then said it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days So Jesus says, if you destroy this temple, I'm going to raise it up and I'll fix it in three days. And they miss the point. Of course, they're, they're thinking he's talking about this temple, this physical temple. But verse 21 explains what he was really saying. John, this is kind of John, hindsight's 2020. This is John after uh, Christ has, has left the earth and he's writing this. This is him looking back. He says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the, and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Christ uh, proclaimed that the authority of his zeal is confirmed in his future resurrection. So here's some things that we learn about Christ's authority and his response to the people's questions. Uh, Jesus' authority is demonstrated in his future knowledge. I'm just going to discuss this briefly because this isn't where I want to mainly focus, but he was showing authority by talking about something that was yet to happen, right? He 
was pointing to his death and resurrection. And he, it's interesting, he was saying something in this moment that his disciples would need later, years later. His disciples would not get this in this moment. They don't get it. They don't understand what he's saying. But they're going to. And isn't that a beautiful thing to think about is that God is so sovereign that he'll give us what we need three years from now. Folks, that's why it's important for you to to love the Word of God. That's why you should listen when you are being preached to. It is why you should get in Sunday school and get in a great Sunday school curriculum like Gospel Project that walks through the Scriptures. It's why every day you should attempt to open up God's Word and to learn more about Him because in that you're building a framework that when you need it, it's there. And so the disciples received a word that they would need years later. Whenever it would happen, they would suddenly see what he meant at this time. And he does the same thing with us. It's not in your moment of suffering that you need to build, suddenly build a framework and flip through the scriptures on suffering. You need to build a framework on what suffering is about. So that when it comes, and it will come, you will have the scriptural framework to deal with it. We should always be engaged in building scriptural framework that we will always need from time to time, and very often. We see that Jesus' authority demonstrated, was demonstrating his identity as the temple. Is Jesus concerned about the worship of the people in the temple? Yes. Does he desire that we be people that examine our own lives of worship? Yes, he does. Is all we have in this account just lessons on worship and how we should be better at it? No. There's much more. He doesn't just give us lessons on worship. He identifies himself as the temple of God here. And he's flipping a whole lot more over than tables. He's flipping over a whole system of worship. The temple was, this, was the meeting place of God and man. It was this place where every day, if you were, went out and you looked at the temple, in the mornings you would see a sacrifice made. In the evening you would see a sacrifice made. It's where people would go to pray, to interact with God. And what he's saying here is that that is me. I'm that now. This is fixing to bite the dust. I am that place where man and God come together. I am that place where God will be in the midst of his people. Jesus is saying here, I am the temple. It'll be just 40 years from, from, from when this says that the, uh, the this, he says this, that the temple's no more. It is destroyed where it still sets, sets in shambles today because it's not needed anymore because Christ is the temple. 
And we also see that that temple was about, was, was established in his death and resurrection. Not only does he identify as the temple, he speaks of his death and his resurrection. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. His authority would ultimately be revealed in his death and his resurrection and his defeat of death. But notice that no one gets it. Not even his disciples gets it. No one that he's talking to at this moment gets what he's saying. Because they had no context of a suffering Savior. They were waiting on a conquering king, not a king that would die. They didn't get it. Back in verse 17, his disciples says that they remember uh, what Brother Josh read, Psalm 69, zeal for your house will consume me. And this is so appropriate because, I mean, there's actually, uh, I mean, literally this means zeal for his house is going to eat him up. And the reality is, is that's exactly what happened. Christ, for his zealousness, for the glory of God, to see God worshipped, to see God's holiness maintained, he walked all the way to the cross and was consumed by his love and affection and zealousness for the glory and worship of God. He loved God's glory so much, and yes, he can, he, the Father and, and the Son and the Spirit loved us so much that He was willing to be consumed by His love for God's glory. But He then would rebuild that temple in three days, and he would rise from the dead. Folks, we needed a whole lot more than lessons on worship. If he had just said, hey, y'all need to do better at worship, I'll see you later, we had no hope. We needed someone who would die to make us worshipers. We need someone who would purchase the righteousness of Christ, uh, the, who, would, who would give us the righteousness of God so that we could be those worshipers of God. And not, not because we're great, not because we're good worshipers, not because we sing well, but because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We are one in Christ, and therefore we are made worshipers of the living God. If you notice, the theme of, of the Gospel of John, as we talked about in week one, is John says, I wrote, I've written these things so that you may believe and have life. And he closes this without, with, with some talk of belief. And that's where we're going to close out. Verse tw- 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So eventually, his disciples got it. They understood that's what he was saying. That's what he was saying. And we know that 
Man, they're, they're, these guys are characters until that moment, until they put it all together after his resurrection. They're like, okay, we get it. We believe. But look what he says in verse 23 through 35, or to, through 23 through 25. I think this is a stark warning to us. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. I think what Jesus is saying here, what the scriptures are saying here, is that not not all belief is created equal. That, yes, the disciples um, came, uh, they all eventually came, of course, except for Judas, they all believe, came to believe, truly, truly believe. But he's saying here there's some that, that are believing about signs. They're, they're, they're not really about me. They're about what I'm doing. And therefore it says, I'm not entrusting myself to them. Folks, examine your heart to make sure that you have a belief in Christ as, as the temple, as that meeting place, as the one who died and rose again, that your belief is a genuine belief that brings about salvation because I can't judge any of you but it says here Christ knows the heart he knows what's in you so it's always good it's good for us to at times just check ourselves and ask ourselves about the belief that we have whether or not it's a Belief like the disciples had where they truly believed in Him as the temple, as, as the meeting place of God, as the one who died and, and rose again. Or if we're just kind of milling around in belief just because we think He's cool and can give us stuff. Examine your heart. I'm going to ask uh, our musicians to come as you stand. Maybe you would ask yourself, where in my life are the tables that need to be turned over? Where are the things that are moving God out of the center of my heart? And and what, what are the things that are making others look at my life and say, you know, they don't really value God, they value other stuff. And and what in my life is are those things that um, where I'm not really truly focused on God the way I need to be focused. But I always realize that God's satisfaction in you is not about whether or not you're the perfect worshiper. It's about whether or not you have believed in Christ, the perfect worshiper who laid down his life for the zealousness of God. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, God, move in our hearts this morning. God, help us to believe to truly believe in a, in a belief that saves. God, please know our heart and show us what we need to know about our belief. And God, help us to be those who worship you, the meeting place of man and God. In Jesus' name I pray.
Amen.